Hi everyone, welcome to the Race and Health podcast, Envisioning Environmental Equity series. Today I'm talking to members of Land Body Ecologies and we'll be addressing the topic of mental health in relation to the environment. My name is Dylan Devakumar and I'm joined by Babitha George, Daniel Kobe and Samrawit Guksa. Babitha is a partner at Quicksand where she works on design research in developmental context. She's one of the co-founders of the Unbox Festival, leading on networks and collaborations, bringing together efforts around social change, art and culture, thoughtful design and open research. Daniel is a founder and executive director of Ogiek People's Development Programme, a non-governmental organisation in Kenya that promotes the human and land rights of the indigenous Ogiek. One of his key achievements is in winning a landmark case against the government of Kenya, where the Ogiek's rights to live in Mao Forest were affirmed. And Samrawit is Head of Communications at Minority Rights Group International, a non-governmental organisation working to safeguard the rights of ethnic, religious and linguistic minorities and indigenous peoples worldwide. Her research interests are in understanding social determinants of health among marginalised communities and the intersection between the enjoyment of land rights and mental health. Samrawit, can I come to you first? Can you tell me just a little bit about Land Body Ecologies and what you do? Sure. Thanks for inviting me to this conversation, Dylan. So Land Body Ecologies is a global interdisciplinary network working to explore the deep intersections between mental health and ecosystem health. We come from various disciplines. We are designers, we are human rights activists, and we are mental health experts, we are sociologists. We've been working to understand and engage with the experiences of land trauma amongst land-dependent communities. Our research is rooted within the communities, so our focus is trying to understand um, the, the mental health impacts of climate change. And solastasia is a fairly new term, uh, but it, it's a term that seeks to describe the distress that one feels or experiences when one's sense of place and home is violated. And we're looking at specifically both climate change and environmental change. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and can you tell me some of the mental health impacts of climate and environmental change? Babitha, would you like to? Yeah, so like Sam mentioned, uh, we, through Land Body Ecologies, which is an ongoing project, we're essentially also trying to understand these vernacular ideas and culture and heritage, which is deeply connected to the environment and land in the communities that we're working with. So I just wanted to quickly mention where we're working. Uh, we're working with the Ogiek in Kenya. We're also working with the Batwa community in Uganda the Sami people in Finland, and a mix of indigenous people, pastoralists and small-scale farmers in the eco-sensitive zone around the Banargata National Park in India. So these are all communities that are really at the forefront of climate change and have suffered for a while as a result of that. So by deeply embedding our research within these communities, those are the narratives and those are the stories that we're hoping to bring out to the world at large. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found um, in the different sites? For us, as we've been doing research and kind of building off the work that has been done with these communities for a while now, mental health is deeply connected to culture and livelihoods and spiritual practices that a lot of these communities have. These are deeply embedded in their homes 
in the lands that they inhabit. So for us, this idea that mental health is deeply connected with so many other strands um, that people's lives are about um, is a crucial part of our project. And through our project, Land Body Ecologies, essentially we're trying to understand the slow violence that has happened to many of these lands and people and to kind of trace back and uncover almost the trauma and mental health impact. Very often we kind of think about the mental health impact of extreme climate change events like a disaster. But in these cases, what has often happened is that this is truly slow and long drawn out um, and thus deeply embedded trauma. So that really is what we're trying to understand better and build a case for. So, for example, the communities that we're working with in the eco-sensitive zone in a forest just outside the city of Bangalore have been facing the pressures of rapid urbanization of the city of Bangalore, but also other events like um, extensive mining and quarrying that happens in the region. And then finally, conservation and notions of conservation that build off what we call fortress conservation that does not take people and communities into account. People who consider the forest their home, people who've lived in and off the forest for generations. So there are these multiple aspects at play and therefore it's political, but it is also very social. And what has happened is that over time, there are all of these decisions being made around their home, which completely excludes these communities. And you see this manifesting in people feeling an extreme sense of displacement. They have been moved out of the forest, they live around the forest, but they feel displaced. They feel like they don't know their home anymore. And we see this further manifesting in very, very evident mental health aspects like alcoholism, like suicide, disconnect between generations, um, an older generation that feels like they've lost their home and a sense of identity and a younger generation that feel like they should move to the city, but feel that tension between what their home is and where they ought to be heading. So I think it's quite evident in our situation what the mental health impacts are. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, thanks. Um, first, being from a background of an indigenous community. One of the greatest mental health we surely experience, which is related to land body ecology, are issues related to destruction of our environment. From my perspective, most of the people, when you talk to them, one of the issues they always feel is that things have changed. It is not like the way we used to see them. Life was a bit easy when our forest was intact. We had less diseases because we, we had clean water. Now that the, the environment has changed, we, we feel we are no longer sure of what next. The time when we expect rain, it didn't come that time. The time we thought it was time for our flowers to blossom and for the sake of our bees and our honey, we don't get. Our production has changed. So that nostalgia they get is related to the past and the present. Because the past makes them feel they were safer. The future makes them feel they are not sure. For us, we see that paradigm shift 
relates to things which sometimes we feel we are out of control. Sometimes we feel we are not in control because when the weather has changed, we are not in control. But the worst part, which traumatized maybe from my community perspective, is when people are evicted from their ancestral land, where they are no longer in the environment where they were, a forced kind of displacement. It is not you who have decided, but a super authority like the government has forced you. So you can now say, I am not in where I used to get my medicine, where I used to enjoy the wild berries, the wild meat, the good things of the forest. It, it makes you feel it has changed. You are in an environment, you are struggling. So people get traumatized. You talk to people and they don't know the name, climate or biodiversity in their own language. People are sometimes not able to understand why they are depressed. When you ask them, say, life, the economy is becoming hard. But in real sense, it is not the power of the shilling or the dollar. It is that things are not the way they used to be. This makes the people wonder, what is our future? I think very clearly what emerges from our research is one area is just how much environmental change and climate change is impacting culture. We're, we're seeing cultures change, for instance, in traditional medicine. Um, we're hearing things around impacts on language. So if um, a certain plant had a name in a specific language, it, like in Uganda, where our partner Sylvia and Action for Bato Empowerment Group, um, they represent the Bato community, an indigenous community that was evicted from their ancestral lands, which is now known as certain national parks in, in the country. After their eviction, you, you're seeing changes in language patterns and across generations, how certain elders will have certain words for, for things that were once in the forest and now the youth don't know about. And this will inevitably have impacts on one's mental health because you're changing the whole identity of a community. These are just some examples that are emerging, but very strongly, a clear link is made between environmental change, climate change, and culture. Thank you for explaining how the environment and mental health is so deeply intertwined. But why are some groups more vulnerable to experiencing distress than others? Why does it affect some people and not other people? Uh, very good question and, and very relevant to, to the Ogia community. The challenge is, Ugega phasing dates back to the colonial time. From around 1933, what we call the Land Gather Commission, these are colonial government planning on how communities will settle in Kenya. Unfortunately, during that, the Ogeg leaders went and asked the Land Gather Commission, now that you have given the other communities their reserves, where are we going to be as Ogeg community? Since we were in the best areas of Mao or in Kenya, they used to call them white islands. They were holding on to these because they were farming. They said, we want to move Ogie to, to Chebalongu in Bomet, which is some distance far from, and it was a different climatical area. And reason was, because you are small in number, you should be assimilated to another community which you are speaking a similar language. 
So the Ogi were moved. Many of them died of malaria, lots of, um, they call them several kinds of diseases. They came back to more forest again after they were already forced. When they said, we can't continue in this, this is a hot place for us. We are used to a cooler place and being inside the forest. It is a semi-arid area. We cannot stay. This affected the Ogie community and they got disintegrated and others got assimilated. So when they came back, there was no reserve for them. So they continued. And then the colonial government decided, okay, since these people have kept coming back to the forest in Mao, because they are calling Mao their home, we will employ them to become forest guards so that they are like, they are inside the forest, but employees, they are not allowed to own. Anything they do, they get a permit. That problem continued to why we went to court after many years. And then early, early 1992, 94, 97, the former president Moy said, I think we need to give part of this forest to the Ogier community. But instead, other communities, there was an influx of other communities coming because this is a very fertile land. So they want to own it. Then again, feel dejected. They feel they are, what the president gave them is not theirs again. It is being taken over by politically connected people. Just to add, I think a big, big damage that colonialism has done in this area is how the land is viewed. From our research, we can see when you speak to land-dependent communities, indigenous communities like the Ogye, when you hear about the relationship to the land, the land is not a separate entity. It's an extension of the self. So protecting land is like protecting self. It's a part of you. Well, what colonialism has done from history, and you can see it across the world, it's, is that it's ingrained in mentality of the land being a commodity. So displacing communities, you know, you have to ask why. Why are you removing population from land? What do you want from that land? And colonialism has taught us it's, it was an extractive practice. It was a way to make money. Capitalism um, could have been around making sure that you're controlling populations for your own self. It's for greed. Um, so at the end of the day, I, I do believe it's what land means that was the issue and continues to be the issue because we see it today with conservation agendas. It's a new form of, of colonialism when you look at the con conservation agenda nowadays. Currently, we're seeing um, states calling for 30 by 30 targets to cover 30% of the world's surface area into protected areas. But if you hear the stories of these communities that are dealing with conservation models that are detaching them from their ancestral lands, the logic and rationale behind that doesn't make sense particularly when you look at the science and you see, especially with indigenous communities, that lands protected and guarded by indigenous communities are um, thriving. Their, their biodiversity is intact and protected. So there's some disconnect here. You, there's an analysis around power dynamics that really needs to be interrogated constantly. Um, and a lot of this comes down to marginalizing voices and not making space for communities to speak to these issues? I think across all of our hubs, there is 
these are communities and people who have been uh, really at the forefront and at the receiving end of so many of these changes. So, for example, in Banargatta, this is very much connected to urbanization and forest rights, and they have traditionally been kept away from something that affects their life really deeply. So these kind of structural causes, whether it might be historical injustices that they've had, um, lack of land rights, um, the inability to participate politically um, in governance formats, etc. I think a key to why they really are at the receiving end more so than any of us. And um, I think like the fact that um, this is deeply rooted to their culture, has never been recognized. That recognition of it being more than just a land rights issue as it gets talked about and that land really is connected to their bodies, their culture, their homes and their communities um, is not recognized when these decisions are made. So I think Ultimately, it really is a question of exclusion um, in decisions that have a really deep impact on their everyday lives and traditions. Cultural loss, livelihood loss, and even identity loss that we're talking about as being connected to this kind of ecological loss and a sense of hopelessness that comes from it, it seems to be a reality across all of our field stations and several others that we've been talking to. And I think the communities themselves perceive this loss and this distress and trauma as a form of injustice that is meted out to them by the same forces that we now have begun to recognize um, as drivers of planetary change. Uh, climate change at the planetary level. So I think there is that sort of uh, power dynamic, like Sam said, at play here as well. So, so the next question is that kind of recognizing these experiences and how it ha how climate and environmental impact is is related to mental health. How do you think, how do you think the climate justice movement can support the people who are affected? This is always the hard part of issues of mental health because it is an area whereby people are suffering internally. Some of them are not visible. And in the process, you, you find people are suffering, but they, they do not have somebody to tell. Because if you have lost what you treasured most, you are crying and nobody can hear. People keep quiet, or you can see their lifestyle has changed. For men especially, you, you find because of the problems which are associated with these, you find them, they have become real alcoholic and they have started leaving their families. It, it is not common in African setup or culture to find a man leaving a family and just staying in a holiday. So in, in many cases, when people begin to talk or share, that is when the healing starts. We used to have every year, we have a cultural event where people share their cultural songs or folk songs. You find people crying. You ask them why they're crying. They get overwhelmed that, oh, once more we can sing our songs, we can share ourselves, that you know that the honey we, we used to enjoy in this part of Mao. They get a bit healed because they have come together. And, and of course, others have indulged into 
religious places where they feel like, or oh, maybe it is it is a, a, a devil which has made me to be having this problem. Maybe I need prayers. So you, you find people are trying to come up with ways of surviving. The best healing I've seen is when people begin to share their problems or their issues, and you begin to tell them there is hope. When we won the Oge case, it gave hope to people. Those who are always said, maybe we will get back our land again. The people who have like there no hope or there no future, they are seeing a future again. One of the issues is what we call free prayer informed consent, whereby you are informed of the things which are to happen in your territory or in your land and territory. Giving enough time for me to become part and parcel of the changes or anything which is to happen in my territory. That gives me a bit of relief without imposing things in my territory or in my land, getting me to know that we want to do development in this place and we need your input. If it is extractive industries, that we are, there is logging to happen. You don't just come and then somebody is giving you, can you move, move because you want to do something like that. Free informed consent helps so that the people are involved and say, yeah, I think we know about this. It's about they're going to help us pay fees for your children or they're going to create a health center for people, uh, people even to be counseled, that they are going to build a, a dispensary or a health center. Or they are going to have to build an ECD or a, a school for the young children. Involvement is one of the greatest things which the community, as you say, also, nothing about us without us. Doing things without our knowledge is, is total disregard of, of, of dignity and, and, and also having our own self-determination in the way things are happening is key. You can give me a smart money, but if you don't give me my dignity, I feel I'm just useless. I just wanted to add that I think it also needs recognition of cultures and a way of life that is really rooted in the ecology around them and in the land around them. Unfortunately, I think the climate movement has been largely Western, Global North driven um, and comes from a certain perspective of um, solutionism. Um, I think it refuses to recognize perspectives from a large section of the world. Um, these are communities, again, that have been facing the brunt of forest conservation movements, for example, that emerge from colonialist history around forests. So how do we move away from that to um, have a more global South narrative in thinking about the future of our planet and what, what solutions or what, what narratives even need to come from these contexts? Can, can I ask just a little more specifically, because we, we have a lot of listeners who work in the healthcare field, what can members of the health community do to support you? I think I would start with moving beyond um, a solely biomedical view of people's health. Uh, we've been talking to people across all of our field stations and otherwise, many of the communities that we work with and asking them about what health even means to them. People talk about good social relationships. People talk about 
living a value-driven life. Um, so spiritual health, people talk about um, food and nutrition and the loss of old methods of cooking, um, native foods, native seeds, and all of this. And these form a truly crucial part of how people themselves think about their health. So I think, um, especially in mental health, by putting, again, a solely biomedical perspective on this, we're losing out on the chance to engage meaningfully with people because these are also communities that have had and gone through and are continuing to go through hard times. The, the idea of even expressing trauma is not often something that's well accepted within the community. However, people find their own ways of coping and people and they support each other through all of this. How can the medical community begin to maybe learn from some of this, be even open to the idea that uh, communities can become resilient if given the chance to um, take care of themselves um, and be allowed to take care of themselves even. Um, so yeah, that's something that comes to mind. Your question makes me think of two strands to cover. One is within the research community, you know, ideas of what we can do within researching solastalgia and mental health impacts of climate and environmental change. And the second is what we can do as individuals, everyone, no matter who you are. And on the first point on research in this area, we really need to first start interrogating who is the researcher. There was a literature review on solastalgia, um, I think it was in 2019, that showed of all the the evidence or all the literature and the evidence base on solastalgia, none, I believe, none were written from an indigenous perspective. And that means essentially taking into account indigenous worldviews. That's a really stark figure, considering solastalgia has been a term that's been around since 2003. Um, one is questioning who's leading the research. In LBE, we have an interdisciplinary approach. Quite importantly, we put communities at the heart of the research. It's a very participatory approach we take. We believe that's the best approach in order to understand mental health impacts because you have to recognize who the knowledge holders are. At the end of the day, we're supposed to find out what, what's true and what's not. I think the research community really needs to interrogate itself on positionality within this space and other spaces as well. So first and foremost, question who is the researcher. If you're putting together research teams, make sure you have communities with this expert knowledge and with this lived experience in your teams. Secondly, who's setting the research agenda? Who's deciding what topic to research? Why are you researching that area? Is it based on fundraising proposals? Are you deciding a topic just because you're trying to make sure you can win a grant? Prioritize the need, essentially. And that comes through what Daniel said earlier about consultation. Building a network of trust so that we can really drive the research community to produce knowledge that we can rely on. Because it's not okay to have missing voices and missing realities. It's an, another element or another type of marginalization when you're marginalized within an evidence base. Um, so that's within the research um, area. And secondly, as individuals, I think what we can do and what we need to do is really question power dynamics. At the end of the day, colonialism was a power project. It will always be in our lives, questions of power. So us as individuals can really question this in everyday life. 
We also need to decide when we need to step back and provide platform for others, uh, particularly marginalized communities. Or another term that might be better is silenced communities. When you marginalize, you automatically silence. This is a violent practice in itself. When you're making space in advocacy circles at the UN, um, whether it's, uh, again, within the research community, if you've got a space on a panel discussion, make space for these voices because we all need to hear them. Um, and thirdly, as individuals, I think we just need to be activists ourselves. We need to speak up. Um, the climate is impacting us all, climate changes, but we need to be invested enough and in the long haul to care about this issue, not just for our generation, but for future generations. Thank you. Thank you very much to, to all of you. And do, do you have any final thoughts on, on this topic generally and any sort of take-home messages for the listeners, uh, Babitha? So I think just to end on the fact that when we talk about climate change in particular and the climate crisis, a lot of it has been coming from, again, the sort of eco-anxiety that largely urban populations talk about, uh, which is well and good. At least we're waking up to the crisis that's staring us in our faces. But again, I think like we talked about before, there is much slower violence in action um, and that needs to be recognized and that can only be seen, heard, recognized if we choose to engage in different formats and um, choose to take the time to engage with people differently um, and allow people to even tell their stories in the manner that makes the most sense to them. Um, so I think I would just urge all of us who are working in this space to be more open to that in our own work um, going forward. Thank you. Thank you to my guests, Babitha George, Daniel Kobe and Samrawit Guksa. For more information about race and health and the work we do, visit www.raceandhealth.org. Thank you and see you all next time on the Race and Health podcast.